uh, resuming our studies in the book of Joshua, I want to turn with you tonight to words we'll find in verse 4. Not that we will confine ourselves to an exposition of these words, but look at them in their context. Verse 4, and at the end of the verse, for you have not passed this way here to four. You have not passed this way here to four. And we have in this chapter one of the most interesting events in the whole history of Israel. Their history, of course, throughout has been a most interesting study. We've uh, followed them from Egypt right through the 40 years of the wilderness journey. We've seen the times of sorrow, times of joy, times of trial, times of victory, times of defeat. We've heard their murmuring and we've seen the faithfulness of Moses, the patience of Moses and the wonderful works of God manifested towards his own people over these years. Now they have arrived on the very banks of the River Jordan. The promised land is stretched out before them, that land which was the object of their hope right through all their journeys. They were always waiting for the day when they would reach this point in their history. This meant, of course, the end of their journeys and the beginning of a new life. Yet, there was still one obstacle to be overcome. There were all these obstacles that we noticed together in their wilderness journeys, and here they are now on the very banks of the Jordan, but the waters of Jordan had to be crossed. And these circumstances, of course, were very new to them. Although they had had great experiences, and although they had learned much of the Lord's faithfulness and the Lord's goodness, there was here a new experience. And you know, friends, this is what is true in the life of faith. His mercies are new every morning. The life of faith is one lived daily in newness. There is a newness, in one sense, in every moment of our lives as we go on. But there are particular experiences that are ours on life's way that stand out, if you like, and we're very conscious of the newness of what is happening, the uniqueness, if you like, of what is happening to us. It is true that even as believers at times we can feel that things are pretty mundane unless we're careful. We shouldn't feel that way, but we do at times. And yet then God comes, perhaps with a trial, perhaps with some particular problem, perhaps with uh, a visitation and providence that brings us low, physically and mentally. Or perhaps he comes so unexpectedly with a visitation of joyous fellowship with himself. And each time he comes, in whatsoever way he comes, there is something new about it all. Because there is nothing stale, if you like, about God. He is ever new. And when he blesses, he blesses with newness of life. Friends, this is what happens when he blesses the soul initially. When he calls out of, the dark, out of darkness into light, he says, Behold, I make all things new. And he makes new men in Christ. Those who hitherto were his enemies, 
and who were under the, the power of sin had made new creatures in Christ. They're brought out of darkness into light. There is a new creation, created anew in Christ Jesus. And so there is a new life. There is a new volition, if you like, in their lives. There is a new purpose. There is a new end in view. Oh, it is wonderful to be in Christ, my friend. Let us all ask ourselves tonight, do we know anything of this experience of being a new creature in Christ and being renewed every day, day by day, in the inward man? Having renewed experiences of God in our lives? Or are we living just on that mundane plane where each day we get up, well, we just expect the same thing. Go to work, come back home at night, watch television for a while, go out for a night, go out for a meal, come back home, it's another week over. Same thing again, Monday morning, back to work, with very little, as it were, of uh, true and real satisfaction derived for any, from anything that we do. How different it is when we are in the hand of God. And when God is leading us, when God is guiding us, when we have God as our refuge and our strength, when we know the newness that is found in fellowship with him, we can expect anything. We should be waiting expectantly upon the Lord and upon his, his work to be performed in ourselves and in others and in the world around us. Remember the psalmist says, I wait for God, my soul does wait. More than they that for morning watch, my soul waits for the Lord. What was he waiting for? He was waiting for a manifestation of the power of God in his own life, in the lives of others. He knew his God was alive. Friends, this is what is true of our God. He is the living God. Christ lives. And because he lives, we live and shall live. Well, this was the message of God to his, the people of God at this time. You have not passed this way heretofore. This is a new experience for you. And this is a new experience for ourselves. There are so many ways in which we could apply this truth uh, to ourselves on life's way. The circumstances they had at that moment were quite new to them. They were, for example, the, their nearness to the land of promise, standing now in the banks of the river, they had not passed indeed that way before. We have not passed this way before. We are here tonight in circumstances that were never ours before. Because the past is over and this is a, a new time. The moment that is ours now is new. And God is speaking to us at this moment in mercy as he spoke to the Israelites on this very occasion. Let us notice then that here the people of God had a new experience. Now, all God's people are in his hands. Our times are in his hands. Now, some of God's people are comparatively free from trial. There are some Christians who know very little of trial. That doesn't make them less Christian. There are others who are often in deep waters, immersed, if you like, in the depths. The God's billows are going over them. God has a purpose in that. But it is true of all of us that God takes us as individuals along 
a particular way that is suited to us. He knows us. He knows our frame. He knows our temperament. He knows how much we can bear of trial. He knows the strength or weakness of our faith and so on. And so he brings us along uh, his own way according to his, uh, his own purpose and wills. Now God's people were here entering on a way that is, was new and mysterious. And it may be, I don't know, that maybe some of God's people among ourselves tonight here who are experiencing in a very real sense that they are in a new way. That is something new in their lives that is mysterious to them and is a problem to them. Perhaps there is someone here tonight who has never, as it were, been in the depths before. And it may have been that you've criticised those who were often in the depths. I remember very well myself when having not had been in much depth of trouble or trial, I used to question the experience of those who were. That's no longer so. We can be so wrong. We can be so wrong, my friends. You see, it may be because we have had things comparatively easy that we can become very spiritually proud, as it were, and not recognize the hand of God in the lives of others, blessing them in the depths, maturing them in the depths. And it may be that God has to put us, as he really has, through such experiences that we may sympathize, that we may understand. Maybe some trial that is yours tonight that was never yours before. There may be some sense of sin that hitherto was unknown to you. You no longer are so prone to point the finger as you were. Aren't we all prone to do that? Unless God in his mercy keeps us conscious of our own weakness. And when he does that, what we say is, there go I but for the grace of God. Lord, who could stand if thou shouldst mark iniquity? None of us could, my friends. It may be that someone here tonight is conscious of failure and yet is commanded to obey. There's a conundrum for you, if you like. The God, word of God, which is true, which is holy, demands our obedience pressing in upon us as it were and conscious of our failure in the past we have to press on to do the will of God to fulfill his word and that may be something that you're experiencing it may be that you hoped to find peace and what have you found? greater trial dispeace instead of peace unrest oh friend Remember, we are all in God's hand, and he knows what is best for us. And let us, if it be that we are being tried as never before, let us remember what the man of God said, Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. And that's faith. That is faith. Does it matter what God has for us, if he be with us? Does it matter what the trial may be? And as I, say, as I utter these words, I realize 
there is a danger of our forgetting what that may involve for any of us. But at the same time, as we look in faith to the God whose word we have, we know that he causes all things to work together to the good of those who love God. All things working to our good. The difficulties as well as the joys. The sorrows with the joys. All things work together to our good. And we know that Jordan is very often used as a, an illustration of death. Passing over Jordan into the promised land. And it may be that someone here is faced with the reality of death as never before. The reality of the, the fearfulness of passing over, if you like, from life, this life, into the, into the next. The River Jordan, in full spate, was a trial of the faith of God's people of old. And it may be that God has brought you and me to face the reality of death. Are you here tonight? And that is true of you. Perhaps you're unconverted. And it has never really come home to you that you must die. Oh yes, it has, but you've pushed it out of your mind. But tonight, you know that yes, you must die. And it's a noble thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If you were to die tonight, what is your hope? What will you do in the swellings of Jordan, my friend? This is the question Jeremiah puts, is it not Jeremiah? And that is a fearful thing, to face the reality of death without the knowledge of God in Christ. And I would beseech you tonight, if this is something that you are experiencing, that you will turn even now to the revelation God has given of his love and mercy in Jesus Christ. Lay hold of him who says, I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. He is the one who conquered death and the grave for his people. And through faith in him, through looking to him, and believing in him, we can say, Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victim? Where, where are the terrors of Jordan as we look to Jesus Christ? And the fact that he died for us, he went to the grave for us, he rose again, he lives evermore. That is our hope as we face the reality of death. That Christ has conquered death. He has conquered the grave. He lives. Though we should pass through the valley of the shadow of death, we need fear no evil, for thou art with us. That is faith. Do you have this faith? Rest not until you do, my friends. Rest not until you can face life and death and say, I'm not afraid. Why should I be? Because my lives are hid with Christ in God. He that is found in the secret place of the Most High who sang together there. Or oh, that as we sing these psalms, we would stop to think what we're singing how beautiful that Psalm 91 is you need not be afraid for terrors of the night or for the arrow that will fly by day while it is light his faithfulness shall be a shield and a buckler to us and it may be that there is a believer here tonight and God 
because he is God, has brought the reality of death very clear or close to you. And as you face the reality of it, you realize what a lonely moment that is going to be. Humanly speaking, what a dark moment that is going to be. But that's only humanly speaking. My believing friend, you mustn't look at the human side altogether. Yes, you must look at that. But in faith, lay hold of the promises of God. That in one sense we shall be alone there. But in another sense we're not going to be alone because Christ is going to be with us then. I will never leave you nor forsake you. As we pass through the waters he will be with us. As we pass through the fire he will not forsake us. I spoke of darkness. How can it be dark if he who says I am the light of the world be present there? He will lighten our darkness for us and we shall enter into rest. I don't know. But it may be that there are some here entering into what was hitherto without the bounds of their experience. And indeed God is saying you have not passed this way heretofore. Which brings me to my second point, which is this. Did we notice there was here a need for preparation? There was a need for preparation. And Joshua said unto the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Joshua spake unto the priest, saying, Take up the ark of the covenant and pass over before the people. And they took up the ark of the covenant and went before the people. You'll notice, as we consider this need for preparation, how Joshua himself prepared for the crossing. Without hesitation, immediately after the spies returned, it would seem he began uh, to prepare for the crossing. He acted in faith. We see this man of God taking over where Moses had left off according to the command of God, conscious of his own inadequacies, conscious of his own limitations. Nevertheless, knowing the limitless power of God, he begins to act and prepare for this wonderful uh, uh, victory, if you like, in crossing over the Jordan. You'll notice that as he was confronted with this great obstacle and great difficulty, which was the Jordan in full spate, because it was the time of, the, uh, of, the, uh, of harvest, and the, the river was full to its brim. As he was confronted with the same, he didn't ask time to allow for the Jordan, as it were, to, to subside, and then act when things would be easier. Aren't we inclined to do that? Aren't we inclined to pray when a difficulty arises? Lord, give me time. Lord, help me for a time. And then maybe tomorrow or next week things will be easier. No, we must act now. This is what Joshua does. The problem is there and it's not going to go away. Indeed, it mustn't. Because God is going to prove 
not only to Joshua and to the Israelites, but to his very enemies, that he is God. And that's what we must remember when we're called to serve him, when we're called in faith to go on against all opposition and obstacles. It's to the glory of God. This is what's wrong with us today. We are so prone to think of ourselves and our own circumstances and what will happen to us and what will so-and-so say and so-and-so about us. What we should be concerned about is the glory of God. This is our chief end in life, the glory of God and the enjoyment of Him forever. And we enjoy so little of God because we glorify Him so little. He didn't, on the other hand, ask for a different route in order to avoid the difficulty and the enemy that was immediately awaiting him in the city of Jericho that was just across the water. Oh no, Joshua is a man of faith and in faith he prepares for battle. Without argument, without delay, he prepares to meet the difficulty and the enemy. And so the officers commanded the ark be kept in view. That is what happens next. The people are told that the Ark of the Covenant is to be kept in view. There was to be a space between the Ark and the people. Now we may, ask, we may ask, why was it that this space between the Ark and the people was commanded? It wasn't just by chance that this happened. God commanded that it should be so. Well, there was one specific reason and it was this that the people would see the ark and we'll notice that as we go on in a moment but there was also this in it that as the people would see the ark they would also recognize the fact that the ark was going before them in other words that God was going before them because the ark was the symbol of God's presence with them and of course it also emphasized the sacredness of the ark, that it had to be separate, if you like, from the people. So there was this arrangement for what was to be done next day. Then there was the command to the people. To cross the Jordan, Joshua tells it, you must sanctify yourselves. You must be sanctified. There is no crossing of the Jordan without sanctification. And friends, I could apply that, first of all, to the fact of our taking Jordan again as, as death, as so many do. And, and I'm not going to dwell too much upon that this evening, but just taking it in, in passing, in that way. We know that it is written that without holiness no man shall see the Lord. Nothing shall enter heaven that defile it. Now God's people know that and we, we, we sense our own unholiness, our own unpreparedness. The most sanctified here tonight feels that and this is one of the great fears that confronts the saint as he or she approaches the end of their pilgrimage in this world. It's not so much death itself perhaps as the fact that they feel so unprepared for that place where there's nothing but God in his holiness, in his beauty, in his perfections. So, from the word of God, the saint of God learns the necessity, the importance, learns that it is imperative that they be sanctified. 
And it may be that there are some people here tonight, I don't know, who are of the opinion that they're going to get to heaven somehow or other sometime. Some way. And yet God tells us that there is nothing in heaven but holiness and perfection. How can we go into such a place, my friends, unprepared? This is why it's so necessary for us to believe now and seek the grace of God to prepare us for that place. We not only need to be justified, we need to be sanctified. We not, not, not only need to be acceptable to God, but we need to be prepared by God to enter that place because were you and I able to enter in without sanctification, that place where God dwells in his holiness would be the most uncomfortable place imaginable to us. We couldn't abide his presence. Who shall abide his presence? Only the sanctified, my friends. That's why I exhort you tonight to seek the Lord, seek to be prepared for heaven. Because we'll soon leave this world and go to meet God, who is holy, who is just, who is true. Sanctify yourselves. Ah, but one argues we can't sanctify ourselves. That's the work of God's grace. Those of us who glory in the doctrines of uh, Calvinism, for lack of a better word, are inclined perhaps to overstep ourselves there a bit. The Arminian, on the other hand, he emphasizes that he's going to do everything himself. There's a happy in-between state, as it were, a condition of mind and soul that is so important. Yes, God sanctifies us, but God's word again and again emphasizes the importance of you and I sanctifying yourselves. Come out from among them and be separate. Abstain from all manner of evil. Shun that which is offensive to God. Live in a manner that is pleasing to God. We cannot excuse any form of sin in the lives of any of us. We must flee from it as that which is offensive to God and detrimental to our own spiritual welfare. We must see it as that which is opposed to God and our own sanctification. We must see it as that which is damaging and ruinous to us. And we must seek for that apt and cleave to that which is good. Have your affections upon the things that are above where Christ is. You didn't expect to be sanctified if you're wallowing in the filth of this world. You didn't expect to be sanctified if your mind is preoccupied with worldly things continually. And you needn't be surprised if perhaps you become the plaything of the devil. Because you see, we are not sanctifying ourselves as we ought. This is the command given to these people. They must sanctify themselves before they cross over Jordan. And so the people folded their tents and followed the priests to the brink of the Jordan. Now, as I've already said, it was the barley harvest and the Jordan was full. And this surely was a severe test of faith. Would they hesitate in fear or would they advance in faith, having done according to the commands of God, having prepared as best they can, sanctifying themselves, getting rid of everything that would come between them and uh, being pleasing to their God. They must go forward believing 
that what God had promised he would do is that not our weakness we look within ourselves we look around us in the world we see everything so difficult so impossible can God furnish a table in the wilderness can he provide for us remember that was the cry of the Israelites of old he did God has given us great and precious promises my friends you and I must not only believe them but act upon them in that God says it it will be if God says so it cannot but be now the priests were not expected to act in blind faith but they must act on what God has promised and so they ask they have to step into the water and this they do they step into the water and what happens suddenly the rush of water is backed up if you like it isn't just stopped but the water is backed up all the way back to the city of Adam now some scholars believe that this city was 30 miles away you might think well why was it necessary for God to stem the water 30 miles back to allow the children of Israel to pass over well if we ask that question we're forgetting the large multitude of people that made up this glorious uh, people of God there were about two million souls involved in what was happening here it wasn't just half a dozen people it was the great gathering of God's people about two million and if they are to pass over they need a very wide expanse to pass over on and they get that God knows exactly what is necessary and God does what? He demonstrates his power on behalf of his people you know there are all sorts of answers given as to how this happened people use this argument and that argument and so on but friends why do we have to look for arguments to prove the word of God? God's word tells us about our God he's the almighty one who created all things out of nothing by the word of his power this is the God who has led the children of Israel out of Egypt through the wilderness and they're now on the very brink of, 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 of the promised land is he not going to act for them now is he not going to demonstrate his power on behalf of Israel at this juncture of course he is and this is what he does and let us remember this is the God who is our God let us believingly come to him in prayer expectantly waiting upon him providing we do his will providing we sanctify ourselves providing we plead the promises of God and expect him to demonstrate his saving power on behalf of us all you can imagine what the Canaanite spies were thinking as they watched this wonderful phenomenon before their very eyes imagine the fear that would enter them as they saw the God of Israel working on behalf of his own people to the glory of his own name in a matter of hours all the kings round about would have heard of what had taken place 
Remember, these people were going into this new land to fight many battles. But God was with them, and God was for them. And that was a lesson God was teaching these kings immediately. That the people who were entering their land were no ordinary people. They were his. They were precious in his sight. He was for them. And not one of their gods could do anything on their behalf. And it is so still. Our God is the Lord by whom the heavens created were. He alone can recreate the soul. He alone can make a new creation, a man new in Christ. He alone can build up Jerusalem and gather the dispersed of Israel into one. And he shall do it to the praise and glory of his name. What I believe happened here was a special act of God. You don't have to go looking for any scientific answer to how it happened something wrong with our faith if we do. I'm not saying that God didn't, that God worked contrary to science. That's not what I'm saying at all. He used natural phenomena to bring it about. But it was his act, it was his work. And the timing was exact. That moment was the moment that he had purposed. And it was so. And we must remember that that is true always in regard to the works of God. He's not dictated to by man, by you or me or anyone else. The wall of water was built up and as it's generally accepted, it more, or less, more than likely or probably was held in place for a whole day in order to allow them all to pass over. And once they were over, the waters immediately cascaded back. And all the, in all this, God was glorified. God was magnified. Joshua himself, of course, was exalted. But you see also, Israel was encouraged. They were entering a new phase. They needed encouragement. They needed strengthening. So do we. We need to be encouraged by our God. And this he does. How often, friends, as we look back in our lives, when we were at our lowest, God intervened and encouraged us and brought us to this moment. Hitherto the Lord hath helped us. The Lord of us has mindful been. And he will bless us still. Surely that is what we ought to say tonight. We have not passed this way heretofore. But what God is saying is this, I am with you. He manifests himself to them. He takes them through. We believe that the crossing of Jordan represents for us the passing, if you like, from one level of Christian experience to another. You see, this is what is true. The Christian progresses day from strength as weary go still forward unto strength and there is there is progression in the Christian life there is a passing of one from one level to another and we believe it is also a picture of passing 
are entering into spiritual warfare to claim what God has promised. That is what we see here. Because the battling of the children of Israel wasn't over once they crossed Jordan. Indeed, it was only beginning. It was only beginning. It means we believe a lesson learned also. That of the end of a life lived by the principle of human effort. And the beginning of a life lived by the principles of faith and obedience. You see, as Christians, we can believe that we can do a lot of ourselves. But God, in his own wonderful way, teaches us that without him we can do nothing. And brings us to the place where we live by the principle of faith and obedience. And I believe if we can learn anything from the book of Joshua, we will learn that, that this is the principle that conquered the land for them and will conquer it for us also. Of course, that doesn't lay aside our responsibilities. I've already sought to emphasize how Joshua prepared everything he possibly could. He did what he saw was necessary. But having done that, he trusted in the Lord. And they got over dry shot. Dry shot. Friends, may we trust in the Lord. Oh, you see, we are so prone to believe that a thing is right if the majority believe it. We know all about that. I needn't go into the various ways in which that is shown in our modern age. But here is one sphere, friends, where that is not necessarily true at all. It is not true. We know that the majority in our day refuse to believe in the God of the Bible, in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the Christ of God. They refuse to accept a life lived by faith in the strength of God. And yet God's word proves to us that those who do and they are in a minority among ourselves at this present moment. They know the secret of the Lord. And they have that which is priceless. That is, they have life everlasting through faith in Christ. And may God grant us the grace whereby we may find out for ourselves the reality in this present day of the victory that belongs to those who indeed live by the principle of faith and obedience and who go on unto perfection. May God bless his own word. Let us pray. We ask thee to bless us, Lord, this night to thy word to us. We pray thee to bless all of us, young and old, all of us as individuals known to
to thee as no other knows us. O Lord, bless and pity us, shine on us with thy face. Bring us to the obedience of faith. Bring us, O God, to know in our daily lives the victory of faith. Bring us to know, above all, that our lives are safe, our souls are safe in Christ. Pardon us for Jesus' sake. Amen.